1: The Economist.
2: In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukieh, the data editor, and today I'm joined by Paul Markley, our innovation editor. Hello, Paul. Hi. And Jason Palmer, a science correspondent. Jason. Hello. Welcome. In this episode, we'll talk about new materials that are changing the way we make everything from light bulbs to cars. And there is a better way to capture from a fossil fuel the carbon before it's even burned. Paul, let's turn to you first. Our Technology Quarterly is out in which we look at a single subject, and that subject is new materials in manufacturing.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, the idea is that there is something of a revolution going on in material science which is turning you know stuff into uh, useful goods and properties and this is being propelled by a growing understanding of the properties of substances at the very smallest scale the microengineering of them and in about five years' time, it's possible that scientists will have completed what some describe as the materials genome, which is a, a big database containing the properties of all known and predicted materials. And that would allow uh, researchers in the future, for instance, to uh, come up with the properties they require put this into a computer. And the computer will provide them with a list of suitable candidates of the materials they might use to make something instead of the old um, process, which was really trial and error ever since Edison came up with the filament for his light bulb. It's an incredible idea. Why did it take so long? Why, why did it take until now to do this? It's a combination of reasons there. One is that obviously the body of scientific knowledge has grown and grown and grown. And secondly, we now have the computing power, which um, basically are supercomputers, to actually get on top of this and to model the atomic structures and the molecular structures and the microstructures of materials, and actually understand this. And on the top of that, you then have new production processes like 3D printing, which is capable of using these new types of materials because they don't necessarily respond very well to the old metal bashing techniques.
2: Great. And let me just ask, about 100 years ago, was someone like Edison or another great inventor able to keep in his or her head all that they needed to know about, you know, the 90% of materials that they would probably avail themselves of, and things have just got complex, or was it even a problem back then?
1: Well, it was a problem back then. I mean, Edison went through something like 1,600 different materials looking for the filament for his um, light bulb. I mean, even the hair from his assistant's beard was tried. Uh, he had 40,000 pages of, in his notebooks of details about this. So it was very much trial and error, and I think he himself admitted he didn't really know the processes that were going on. And they eventually ended up with a with a tiny sliver of a, a certain type of bamboo that came from a particular place in Japan. And even that wasn't the best filament, because it was very shortly afterwards uh, taken over by tungsten, which went on to become the light bulb. Today, of course, with new material sciences, we don't use that invention at all, because light bulbs are being replaced by a new material, which is a sort of semiconductor that is used in various forms in LED lighting, which are more efficient, last a lot longer, and um, to some extent will save an awful lot of energy. Interesting. Jason? This
0: this talk of, of the the light bulb reminds me of a story earlier this year about the first, quote, commercial product that uh, the graphene is used in, the graphene light bulb. Talking of this the, the sort of revolution and so on, I do wonder what's become of graphene and carbon nanotubes and the stuff that's kind of been in the news in recent years. Is that forming part of this revolution, or was that all kind of a flash in a pan of bulb?
1: Graphene <laughs> is there, and is indeed a very interesting material. It's got lots of unique properties, but there are many other sort of nano um, tiny materials that are working at the atomic level. The thing about graphene is, yes, there's lots of people with lots of ideas, but there is no killer app as yet. Not to say there won't be. There very likely may well be, but sometimes um, materials just take a long time to come into being. The laser was a bit like that. That looked like to be a, an application um, that was looking for a use.
2: Yeah, that's right. And we have found them, but in a lot of unexpected places. More show now. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing quite right. So let's think about the the material genome. It sounds like if this comes home to roost, that is going to change lots of things. In particular. how the factory is organized and structured. Tell us more about that.
1: Well, you're already seeing that. I mean, obviously, 3D printing in certain Mm -hmm. factories, we're seeing uh, Airbus uh, and uh, Boeing moving quite uh, heavily into this and GE in particular as well, even G printing parts for jet engines. But I think one of the best examples I came across was um, BMW's factory in Leipzig, which makes its new electric cars. Now, these are made principally out of carbon fibre, but it's unlike any car factory I've ever been in before. For a start, it's rather quiet. There's no big steel stamping presses. There's no showers of welding sparks. There isn't even a giant... um, paint spray uh, operation going on there either. And it's a very low energy, low efficient, highly efficient factory. What's the fun
2: of visiting a car factory if you can't see all of those
1: great big toys? Well, the interesting thing there is the supply chain because those cars begin life in a Mitsubishi Rayon factory in Japan as a spool of a fiber called a precursor, which is a bit like plastic fishing line. And this goes off to Washington State where it's basically baked until it's turned into strands of carbon. The strands of carbon are then spun into larger fibres which are then put on more spools and go to Germany. Those spools are then unwound and woven into uh, mats, uh, cloth type material which goes off to the Leipzig factory where they're shaped uh, mixed with uh, resin and uh, heated and, and pressed in machine tools and the robots pick up the pieces uh, and glue the car together and that's how you build a carbon fibre car. A Completely different supply chain.
0: Most of this sounds like the textile
1: industry more than it does it the car lo- industry. Indeed, it does. In fact, if you go to some of the uh, factories where uh, the plants where they're building uh, carbon fiber wings for Airbus,es um, it does look like a textile mill with all these fibers being spun together. And that's, that's just one example. But similarly, if you went to a plant that was building uh, fuel injectors for GE's next generation of jet engines, I mean, they're being 3D printed.
2: What sort of breakthroughs do you expect to see through the manufacturing genome and these new supply chains.
1: Um, The combination of the materials and new production process, I think the big one that we can see coming are new batteries, better batteries, in particular lithium-ion batteries. The chemistries are getting very interesting. Maybe we will start fairly soon to see solid-state lithium-ion batteries, which will be safer and lighter. And batteries that have twice the ability to carry a charge, so you could have your smartphone would run twice as long on a single charge or your electric car would go twice as far. We're heading towards that with um, some of these new materials easily. And there are other battery systems being investigated, all sorts of new materials being looked at for other forms of electrical storage, which then could be used in homes or in offices or other buildings. And that would allow the storage of intermittent solar uh, or wind power. And that could transform the markets for renewable energy. So is
2: it this just an unbridled good or are there any downsides of transforming manufacturing this
1: way? There is a bit. I mean at the moment, um, you know, a few thousand carbon fiber airplanes is one thing when they reach the end of their lives. Um, you can sort of dismantle them. But um, carbon fiber doesn't rust, of course. So if you're going to build – And if it does happen that you end up with millions of cars built in carbon fibre, what's going to happen to them at the end of their lives? Also, some of the nanoparticles that are being used. We don't really know the life cycle of these things and what their long-term effects are in the environment. So with new materials and new processing techniques, companies are going to have to get much more on top of the whole life cycle of their product, not just the design of it, but what the real cradle-to-grave energy costs are and their eventual uh, recycling or, or reuse.
2: Great. Thank you very much. Jason, let's turn to you. Now, we have just been talking about one of the downsides of the new manufacturing technologies being how we recycle all of this, but we also saw that there was great benefits for the environment because of materials that don't need to rust and therefore don't need to be replaced quite as much. So this week, negotiators are in Paris trying to hammer out a new climate change treaty, and you're writing about new technology, or at least better technology, to capture the carbon from a fossil fuel even before it's been burned. Tell us more about this.
0: There is, uh, of course, a lot of talk um, in environmental circles and certainly some of it going on in Paris now about uh, what's called carbon capture and storage. Um, this sort of after-the-fact thought of, okay, well, we've burned our fossil fuels and the carbon dioxide is out there. How can we you know, gather it up and, and store it underground or lock it into uh, novel new crystal materials or things of this sort? Um, but there is a, a small amount of research going into how to do, how, basically, how to capture this carbon from hydrocarbons, from fossil fuels, before it's even burned. Uh, and so what we're talking about this week was what I've been looking into is uh, a method of what's called methane cracking. So methane is just a carbon with four hydrogens around it. If you break it up into its constituent bits, you get just carbon and hydrogen, itself a useful fuel that when you burn it, it just it produces water. So what this really is about is just basically getting methane to, to decompose into its bits, but not in standard ways. There's, for instance, steam reformation, which creates itself carbon dioxide in, in the process of breaking methane down. What I've been looking into is an entirely new way to do this, where all you get is basically carbon carbon black, powdered carbon, and loose hydrogen. No extra carbon dioxide produced
2: okay so how does this work
0: well uh, lots of people have tried to do this this is this has been an attractive prospect for for some time and this is kind of a, a resurrection of uh, an idea from the late 90s in which you use molten metal so if you were to, to get anything to break itself up into its its constituent bits is to heat it up it rattles itself apart so you can use what's all kinds of different schemes fluidized bed reactors and all sorts of things but effectively when you break that carbon free it coats everything and if you want it if you want your reactor vessel, what have you, to transfer the heat so all this can keep going, carbon coats everything. It's like a a soot-covered chimney, if you like. So one way to get around this is to use liquid metal. If you just use a column of really hot tin, in this case, because it's not very reactive with with methane, bubble up the methane through it, each of those bubbles kind of acts as its own little reaction vessel. And so, yes, the, the carbon is kind of, it's being broken apart, the carbon coats the inside of the bubble, but when the bubble gets to the top, it goes and the carbon just deposits there on the surface, and the hydrogen floats away.
2: Great. So what do we do with all this excess carbon now that's sort of the residue and byproduct of bubbling up through the liquid tin? Mm.
0: Uh, well, it could be useful. mean, um, this carbon black is, is used, for instance, in the rubber industry. It's in all of the car tires. It uh, can be used. We were talking earlier about lithium-ion batteries. The, the electrodes in those have have carbon on them. So there is some use for it. Now, if this were to, to really take off, if this turns out to be the good idea that these researchers um, in Germany think it is, you might well saturate the market with the stuff. But hmm. I think it's... Sorry, maybe you could turn it into
1: BMWs and Airbuses.
0: Well, <laughs> that depends actually on the nature of the the particles themselves, right? So the, the starting materials for your, uh, for your carbon fibers and so on depend very much on what you need to start your, your carbon fibers and so on, it's very dependent on the, the particle Indeed. properties and so on. And yeah. that's still to be found out exactly what kind of uh, reactor conditions you get gives you what kind of carbon at the top. In any case, a lump of carbon dust is a lot easier on the environment than a pile of carbon dioxide.
2: And so how close are we to seeing this get adopted?
0: Well, uh, as I say, this is kind of just one idea in a vast portfolio of ways people are trying to find uh, to get the best out of hydrocarbons in general without any of the sort of onward bad effects. It will all depend on the economics. All of these things depend on the economics. This is just kind of a peek into how we can kind of keep using things, you know, ever more abundant uh, natural gas and methane and so on without sort of the, the bad onward effects. Will we see exactly this? maybe will we see things that are kind of like this, almost certainly.
2: Fascinating. Well, thank you, Jason. And thank you, Paul. At this point, we'd like to end our show by having you tell us what you think. Please tweet us at EconSciTech on Twitter and also on our Facebook page at The Economist. And we'd also like to end by looking at some of the tweets and Facebook messages that we received from the previous episode. On Facebook, we received a message from the user LexDef, who says, I feel like there's more people that accept Einstein's theories. There are still too many people denying Darwin's. Maybe theoretical physics just is too complex and abstract for most. A second message from the user named Angie Lynch, she wrote, Einstein's ideas are far more difficult to understand, but don't have the moral implications that Darwin's do. Jason, would you like to comment on these two very interesting messages.
0: I think uh, they're both speaking to to the same thing. Ultimately, that relativity is a little easier to swallow because basically it doesn't have a whole lot of everyday impact on everyday life. And so it's also we,
2: harder to understand.
0: Yeah, but I mean in that in that regard you can be told that you know super smart people came up with this and just take our word for it and so on and so you you know it's about belief in uh, in that sort of well that the trope of the lone genius or in any case of the sort of primacy of theoretical physics and what have you but it's not about you know where did that animal come from and what is this origin myth and this kind of thing.
2: Well that's right it also the bible was silent on Well, it's not silent on the creation of the universe, but certainly silent on things like gravity, whereas it is hardly when it comes to the evolution of plant life and animal life.
0: Well, yeah, I guess guess that's true. The theory sort of as written isn't an affront to to anyone's beliefs because we're talking about things that are so incredibly intangible to begin with.
2: Thank you, Jason. And thank you, Paul. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, please visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. (music)
1: The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with Good Credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award winning insights, and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit slash banking for business to learn more.